Beth, I was going to say, uh, a, little a little more light right over here would be good. The thing over here. Isn't this a thing that... Yes. <laughs> okay. I had people pointing different ways. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> Whoops. That's good. Yeah, however it is. It's good because the first thing that I thought of talking about this afternoon after we said hello was uh, an attitude about Dharma practice, which would really be an attitude about life. Is It'll be all right. We'll make do. We'll make it work, uh, which is mostly how we figure it out in in life. We braille our way into understanding. We take chances and we guess. I've, I noticed yesterday that more and more, the my name is Sylvia. I should say that. Let me let me start at the beginning. My name is Sylvia. Welcome to Spirit Rock. We're very glad that you've come. Right next to me is Conda Mason. Kanda and I have been friends since the early 1990s when we met at Kripalu um, Yoga Center in upstate New York. Uh, John Martin, next to Kanda, is uh, a friend of mine since 19... Since 2000 we met. John and I met in 2000 when he first came to practice here, and we have remained friends and now colleagues in addition. Uh, and he's been a wonderful part of our teaching team for some years now. And next to him, Jashoda Edmonds, who I also met at Kripalu <laughs> way, way in the beginning of the 1990s. And so in all these capacities where she is adding um, mo uh, mindfulness movement to a Dharma retreat that I'm teaching, or I am teaching Dharma in a yoga retreat that she's teaching, We've cycled back and forth out of those various roles for the past 20 years, and at least, yeah. And uh, over here in the corner, <laughs> in this corner, <laughs> is Ramona <laughs> Ortiz-Smith, who's a manager here, at, who I've known for some years now, and Beth Baker next to her, also a manager, who I've known for many more years. So. We are, uh, all of us, excited about this being the first of these kinds of retreats. And we're very happy that you're here with us. And uh, Ramona and Beth want to tell you something about their role here and how they'll interact with you right now. And they'll be back to finish that <coughs> discussion later on this afternoon. Hi, so welcome everyone. Uh, we just want to briefly let you know that if an emergency or an urgent situation should arise before we reconvene with you at 440, you can come to the manager's office, which is right next to where you checked in with us at the council house, and we'll either be in there. If we're not there, there'll be signage to let you know how to contact us. Other than that, we'll see you back here at 440, and we will talk to you more about living mindfully on retreat and what our roles include. So welcome and thank you.
so that's a little bit of who we are. And we wanted to know a little bit about who you are. How many people are here for the very first time ever on a mindfulness retreat in their lives? Fabulous. Look at that. Put both of your hands up so we really see how many. I'm not, I'm not multiplying by two. I'm just making sure that I see all. That's a lot of people. Never been on a mindfulness retreat. Never been on a mindfulness retreat. That is fantastic. So welcome. We are all very happy that we are your, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say indoctrinators, that sounds bad. Uh, initiators, initiators is good. There you go. We get to initiate you. I love that. Ah, power. <laughs> uh, how many people have been on a million mindfulness and meta retreats and been at Spirit Rock often? All right. Less. Okay, good. How many people say that in the middle, not a million retreats, but more or less? Uh, how many people were in other places but not here before? Uh, okay, that. This is amazing, isn't it? You know, when this building was being built, and I came, and the first, the first time we were able to come in safely with all the scaffolds and whatever to see it from in here. I remember walking in with a number of my colleagues and really we were, we sat, we'd seen the plans, but you come in and you sit down in here. And I remember we looked at each other and some one of us, not me, but one of us said, do you suppose we're smart enough to teach in here? You know? <laughs> it, but I think actually we grew into it and we got smarter. How many people feel better now than the moment they arrived this morning at Spirit Rock. That's fantastic. I thought that would also be true. You know, people say, you know, I don't know what it is, it's magic. When I start, when I make that turn off Sir Francis Drake Boulevard and I make the turn into Spirit Rock, I already feel better and I didn't do anything yet. But you did do a couple of specific things. First of all, you made the plans to come. You had the intention to be here. And you had some idea of what you hoped it would do for you. And it's a wonderful thing to imagine, because it's true, that the mind can really do anything if it's a, even a little bit trained. You can say, I don't want to think this. I want to think more that. I want to lift up my mind. I want to have a little bit more lilt in it. I want to feel a little bit more hopeful. People drive in, even if they're feeling in a really distressed place, they think, okay, at least here I'm going to feel hopeful. You know what I particularly love? So this is my drive in here story. One, one day I drove in the 20, so 30 years, however long I've been driving in here. I drove in one day and I was really feeling in a disgruntled mood and despairing about one thing or another. I could probably guess it was probably about this or that trouble in the world or in my family. And I drove in and uh, a bunch of turkeys walking across the road in front of me. And I feel better when I see the turkeys. They're so impossible. They don't, <laughs> they don't look like anything that you could imagine. I think to myself, what was God thinking? They're not even balanced well. They, don't, they walk along and they waddle, they're odd, they're peculiar. And they always lift up my spirits because look at that. The world has really got some amazing things in it. Tons of troubles and also turkeys. And it always picks up my mind. And also because I come from 
east of here, I pass that big field of cows. And depending on the, 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 the season, and now is a good season, it's full of baby cows standing next to their mamas or lying down next to them. And I look over and see these little lumps of black baby cows sitting there. And I think the world is going on and on and on. And our world on the level of living in it is having all sorts of problems. But it turns on and on and on. And there's something about the universe is turning the right way as it used to be. And the sun came up in a place in the sky where it was supposed to. And there's something that's grounding. It's not just my life or just the American scene at this point or even the world scene and all the problems it has, there's also the cosmic scene of from whenever and until whenever, so that it, it really does something about holding this moment, at least it does for me. So I hope even before we say anything or do anything, just arriving. And what's more, since whenever you arrived here, you haven't heard a phone ring, and you haven't seen a television screen. So anyway... All of those contributed to if you feel better now. And you had a very good lunch. All of which conti will continue to contribute to your feeling better. The name of this retreat is Everyday Life is Mindfulness Practice. I want to say that uh, I think it must have been in the late 1880s 1980s, I was not alive in the 1880s, but <laughs> the 1980s, there was a, um, there was a uh, big conference in San Francisco. I think it was the Conference of Transpersonal Psychology, which meant it was psychologists, psychotherapists, uh, who were interested in we as well in spiritual practice. And um, They'd come for a day long of all kinds of breakout groups of things, but they met together in this big, huge hall in a hotel in San Francisco Conference Center, several hundred people for sure. Um, and George Leonard, the man who wrote Education and Ecstasy, was the uh, convener, the master of ceremonies. And he did the usual thing. He did something like what I did with you. How many people have done this before and that before and the other before? He said, how many people uh, came from California? How many people came outside of California? Which are easy and neutral questions because you either do or don't. Then he said, how many people here have uh, a daily physical practice? You go out and you run or you do yoga or you do Tai Chi or Qigong or how many people have a physical practice that they do every day? You know, maybe half, three quarters of the people put up their hand. So how many people have a relationship practice that they recognize? They're in relationship and working that out. How many people have a relation practice? Uh, maybe half, three quarters, who knows? Put up their hands. How many people have a parenting practice? Many, many people put up their hands. I said, how many people have a spiritual practice? People thinking, you know, up the hand, down the hand. Does any of those count? Then he said, how many people voted in the last election? And they all put up their hands. And I was very, very touched and moved and um, uh, validated in my perception before I started with anything labeled a spiritual practice that this is not to take you out of the world, 
but to let you to participate and motivate you to participate more fully as a person in community in the world. So I like that very much. The, the, the big, uh, a big criticism of spiritual practice in those days, in the 18, 1980s, late 70s, is all these people navel-gazing. They're not doing anything. They're getting away from it all. They're, and I thought, I thought it was all these people getting into it all by getting ready to do it with kindness and compassion and awareness. I also thought, because I had this feeling at that time myself very much, and other people did, that we would hear instructions like how long to sit every morning or every afternoon or how long to do this kind of practice, every, do you do it every day or when do you do it or how much meditation practice because people did have Tai Chi and Qigong and yoga. How much of this practice, how much of that practice, how much of the other practice. And so people would say, you know, I have so many things that I'm already doing and I have a 40-hour job and I have a partner and children and I can't add another thing to my life. And I want to say in advance that my sense over the years, I also thought that I don't have any time to sit. And sometimes over the years I've had enough time to have contemplative quiet time every day and sometimes I haven't had enough time and sometimes the exigencies of my family life, etc., but what I began to see soon is not that I pushed my new spiritual practice in with all my other practices, but that what I felt as my spiritual practice, which in essence is keeping my mind clear and my heart open, took over all the practices. And it just did that over time. It kind of became clear to me that what we were doing was not a new and separate thing, but it was including everything in every posture and at every time of day, in every venue and in every place, as a place to practice kindness and compassion. The end goal of everything, to, par- to parent, to partner, to teach, to be a psychotherapist, to be in anything, is to do that with kindness and compassion because it would be for the benefit of all beings and it would be for my benefit. It would make me happy. So I didn't have to think, now I'm doing the this and now I'm doing the that. While we're here, We'll have the sitting in the hall practice and with eyes open or eyes closed and the various different technical practices we'll learn. And we'll have the eating practice and the walking practice and the movement practice and the sharing with other people ideas practice. And there will all be the one practice of what are we really doing here. Somebody, a couple of years, some years ago, somebody came to see me on retreat um, after uh, we've been on, we, retreat started, and we, we, in this retreat we won't have uh, the possibility of individual imp- appointments because we don't have enough time to do that. But somebody came to see me in one of those one-on-one appointments, and you know, a person had been here for several days and was going through all the things of doing this, doing that, sitting now, walking then, hearing a Dharma talk, eyes closed, eyes open. And he came in and sat down and looked at me. And with a very, you know, no bad tone in his voice, he said, what exactly are we doing here? (laughs) So uh, that's what I want to say is that answer, what exactly are we doing here, is the answer that I want to start from, or the question that I want to start from. Because the answer to that question is we are trying in every way we possibly can to habituate our minds and our hearts 
away from impulsive response and into loving and wise response because we've come to have the minds with the responses that it has from all the things that have happened to us forever and ever. And because when something happens, we respond this way and that way and that way and that way, because that's how we've learned and that's how we've always done. We have enough time to begin the general practice of becoming wise about what responses make the heart at ease. There's um, one of the books about the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, starts with the sentence, one that the Dalai Lama has said, of the purpose of life, it says, is to be happy. I thought, wow, that's an interesting thing. I thought he would have said the purpose of life is to serve. Because here he is, and forever, for, since he was named the Dalai Lama, uh, 75 years ago, more, he's now 83. Since that time, he has been serving his people and now and out in the world, teaching here and there about freedom and liberty and democracy and virtue. I would have thought he would have said the purpose of life to be to serve. And I think that in all of what we'll be teaching, it will be clear that that, 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 the perp- when we serve and when we are liberated from the tension of being self-preoccupied and instead of being I-preoccupied, we are we-preoccupied, we are happiest. That serving is actually the path to happiness. Serving in all the ways that we can. Developing the qualities of the heart that respond naturally with ca- compassion to other people. There are two traditional Buddhist stories that I want to say at this point. One of them is uh, the, the, the legend that someone approached the Buddha. You know, the Buddha was born uh, uh, five and a half centuries before the common era um, and grew up and undertook his life as a a searcher and realized uh, an understanding of of life that he felt for him and for everyone else would liberate their minds from the extra suffering of not being able to recognize and deal with wisely the inevitable challenges of life. And he taught it to all the people from the time of his discovery at 30-something years old until he died in his 80s. He taught it to all the people that he met, and he founded this long and venerable tradition. It's said that somebody said to him once, a questioner said to him, uh, having heard about his remarkable breath of wisdom, are you a god? And the legend says, he said, no, I'm not. And the questioner said, are you an ordinary person then? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, what are you then? And he said, I am awake. I love that story. And I wish that that questioner had hung around more and that he had said, well, 
now that you're awake, what do you see that I don't see? Because then I figure he could have said, he did say this, but in the accounts he said this several weeks down the road in an encounter with former monk colleagues of his. When he said this, he said, these are the four noble truths of life. What he taught especially to those monks and what we teach continually is that there are four things that are true. Some contemporary Buddhist teachers, Dharma teachers, teachers in other traditions are calling them the four very good ideas. Here are four very good ideas. Life is complicated. It's complicated for anyone. It's particularly challenging because it's continually changing. So there's nothing that you can count on for an enduring source of happiness. Because everything arises and passes away. The second of those amazing truths is that we complicate our lives by um, the habit of imperative in the mind, the habit of insisting that things be different from the way they are, that a really clear understanding of life is that things are the way they are now in this moment or the moment before or will be a week from now because of everything that has ever happened anywhere that is converging upon this moment to make this moment what it is. Sometimes when I think about the fact that here I am here at this moment, or you are at any moment, and we all have such particular journeys that have gotten us here. We went here and there and there and there, and we barely escaped some jeopardy situation here or there. It's a miracle that we've each of us gotten to be here. And we say, oh, I'm a room full of people. A room full of people is a miracle. There's so, it's an endless number of things that could have changed so that nothing would be like this. The Buddha said that thinking about the karma of things is one of the imponderables of life. Don't even bother pondering. You can't even do it. And things are the way they are at any point because of everything that happened. But things will be the way they are because of everything that everybody does and everything that happens in the, in the alive world or in the, in the people world or in the anything world will be because of what everybody does. And in this moment is the only moment that there is a volitional space for each of us to act, for me to act or for you to act or for anyone to act. And if in this moment what my manifestation in the world is, is adding to it a soothing presence, a compassionate practice, presence, a wise practice. For that infinitesimally small moment, that's my contribution to the world, it's my contribution to myself, to my family, to my children, to my grandchildren, to the people who know me, because in that moment I am not held hostage, I am free to choose, and the mind that's resting has the most clarity about what to choose. It can undo habits of the mind that create suffering. The third good idea 
I always love to rush up to this idea when I used to teach, uh, when I used to teach uh, young adults in junior college uh, in Marin County or in Dominican College where the 18-year-old Marin County people who have not suffered a whole lot. And I start in talking about life as suffering, I, you know, because that's what it is, actually. It's not a continual suffering, but fundamentally, it's full of contingency, and you can't plan on anything. Anyway, when you speak, talk to young people who think they can do anything and are really have had really lives without too much trouble in them, and you start to tell them about life as challenging and innately unsatisfying, that hasn't been their experience. So I've always in such a rush to get up to the third good idea, the third noble truth, so that they won't not like me altogether by the time I get there and say, okay, so, but the truth is that peace is possible. We can come to terms with the fact that this is life, this is how it works. The absorb of the Greek, this is what you get, the whole catastrophe. And it's not about not having it. It's about having it, being with it, not turning away from it, learning from it, developing a sense of compassion for the whole world because everybody's doing it, and then being joyful in your ability to contribute to other people's ease, being happy about serving as a source of compassion and kindness and friendship and honesty and goodwill. And the fourth of the good ideas is the good ideas of the practice path. So this is a weekend of practice that we'll all do together. But we've already been practicing. You practice from before you got here. As you were coming here, you were really excited or nervous or whatever you were. But you came. You got yourself here. You did that. And you, you practiced getting into a strange room and unpacking yourself. And you practiced having lunch in this community and you practice being with people and talking to them and paying attention to how you felt when someone said X or someone said Y. This is really the practice of paying attention to the vicissitudes of the mind and what it does and to notice what its habits are. I'd like my habits of my mind to be habits of peacefulness, habits of soothing, Habits soothing myself and other people. Habits of um, choosing on behalf of the well-being of myself and other people. When you walked around a little bit, when you came up, you passed by the gate. And how many people saw the prayer wheel that's there? Did you play with it a little bit? It's fun to do. It's like you say, all right, which is my thing? In a description for this particular weekend, it says, we'll talk, and we will, about all the eight parts of that practice path. There's a way to delineate them each separately as separate practices. You say, well, when do I stop doing that and start doing that? That's actually, it's one of those neat little conundrums that end up saying, they're all each other in a different guise. They're really all each other in a different guise. And we can be practicing them all the time. Um, And that Eightfold Path of Practice has, for 2,500 years, been really the piece of uh, Buddhism Dharma that is shared throughout Buddhism in its many manifestations all over the globe.
One more thing to say. All of the separate practices that we'll teach about here's a meditation practice, here's a walking practice, here's a movement practice, here's an eating practice, all of them in their own way are pointing to uh, the goal of soothing the mind so it can feel tranquil and alert. Tranquil doesn't mean stoned out or... Uh, not aware, tranquil and alert means at ease and awake. When that questioner asks the Buddha, what are you, if you're not a king, a god or an ordinary person, and he said, I'm awake, I think what he meant is I'm awake. I really recognize in every moment what's true, and I recognize what's the movement that I could make with my life, with my thoughts, what could I do? What my action, my speech, the way I work in the world, that will contribute to wholesome and not wholesome states. Somebody asked the Buddha. Uh, somebody said, "How long should in the, in the history of this? How long should I practice this mindfulness every day, of a breath practice, which I'll teach more about tonight." breathing in and breathing out and watching it. And the Buddha said, from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep at night, fall asleep. And when I tell that to people, they usually say, yeah, yeah, who could do that? You know, when I'm first waking up or first falling asleep, I'm really groggy, I don't know what. I think it's a metaphor. It means practice all the time. It means there's no venue and there's no time outside of practice time. So what we'll do in these three days together is I'll talk for a while, and then Kanda will talk for a while, and John will talk for a while, and Jashoda will talk for a while, and we will sometimes be standing and moving, and sometimes be sitting, and sometimes outside walking, and sometimes eating, and sometimes away sleeping. But we will always be contributing to a hopefully ongoingly cultivated situation of soothed and alert. There's a line in the... Metta Sutta, where it says we ought to love all beings, wish them well. And the clue line in that sermon, to be able to enable the mind to love all beings, to care for all beings, doesn't mean to like all beings, to care for all beings with equal concern is wishing in gladness and in safety. So what we're trying to cultivate is minds that are safe and glad. There's one contemporary teacher in the Midwest. Who says the whole of instructions is one word. He says to his students, relax. You get upset about that, relax, relax. I don't, I'm sure he does not mean lie around. <laughs> Just if you're watching the mind and it becomes tense about something, relax. He can do it. Vimala Ramsey, his name is. So we'll give you lots of other instructions. Relax is the first one. And I'm glad you're here. And... Kanda. Hmm. 
Oh, I'm going to take this off. I'm too loud in my own ears. Hi. Hi, everyone. Bear with me, so I'm stuck. Um, okay. There we go. Ah. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah? In the back, ask as well. Beautiful. I like that. You're the thumbs up. I'm glad you're here too. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here listening to Sylvia as um, I just thank you for asking me to do this mm-hmm. retreat with you. I love working with Sylvia. We work together a lot over the years. It's wonderful. I learn so much. So mind me scribbling notes because she'll say something and I always want to catch it. And I'm looking out and everybody is such a wonderful crowd. I was wondering, like this is a, as Sylvia mentioned, kind of a new format of a three-day residential starting on Monday retreat. And like, and, and it's sold out so quickly and there's a waiting list. It's like, well, who are the people who's coming? <laughs> and, and looking out, I'm, I'm seeing just so much variety of, you know, very young people. Thank you, young people, for being here. And... Um, don't want to call you out, but and um, and the rest of us <laughs> sure don't want to call us out. And um, it's just delightful to see the faces and who's here, and some old friends of mine are here, and new friends, and hopefully even friends that I'm going to make in these next couple of days. So it's lovely, 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 lovely to have you here and um, to be here with you. So, yeah. And, you know, I was just listening to one of the things. I was listening to you, Sylvia. And I think, um, I thought you're going to hear the word practice a lot. I think that you probably said it about quite a few times. <laughs> and I think that that's what this is about because one of the things that we spoke about and by the title and what we're hoping for is for this to just be a, a practice of three and a half days nonstop just nonstop from every moment and all the movements between the movements and all the eating and sleeping and walking and talk and, and silence and that is just practice and so I'm really happy that you're here and those of you who for the first time so many of you thank you for showing up I think that this is a good format for that kind of wetting your toes into practice and so um yeah, I think that we have going to have a beautiful time together. And, and um, I'm just, again, really glad that you decided to come and to be here and to taste the Dharma and what does it mean to have a life filled with, with, with practice that is leaning towards, leaning into wisdom, leaning into kindness, leaning into open-heartedness. It's a beautiful practice. And so the hope is that we will do what we do here and that our lives will show it out in the world as we go back into our lives. So we're going to begin, like I said, there's just different parts of practice and this is going to be our contemplative time that we're going to move into right now, which is... um, I'm going to start with us just really 
landing in our spaces right now where you are. Landing in your bodies. Really finding that place where putting things down if you have them on your lap. Finding that place where you really just find your seat. Really finding what is your seat right now. And as you settle, just settling in for our contemplative time, settling in and see if it feels good to you to have your eyes closed or if not just looking downward and as we just begin to settle in. There's a place of comfort in your body. So that one word, relax. Allow the body to relax in this moment. Checking in with the body. And at the same time, there's an alertness. So this, there's this relaxed and alert. Being present in this moment. And allowing yourself to, to connect with the breath. Noticing, noticing where the breath is in your body right now, where it is predominant, if it's in the belly or the chest, or where do you feel it most? That awareness. We're going to talk more about the breath as the object of meditation. But just now, noticing it, without judging it or altering it, just noticing. This body breathing. And now moving your awareness to any sensations that might be happening in your body. You might feel the air on your skin. Any sensations of tightness or Just noticing if they're pleasant, pleasant sensations may be happening or unpleasant sensations or some that are just neutral. Or maybe even notice the absence of sensation. 
No need to tell a story about it, just notice where. Bring in your awareness to any thoughts that may be arising that are strong enough to hold your attention. And simply noting that this is not the breath, this is thought. You don't have to get lost in it or elaborate, just thought passing. Our tendency is to grab onto a thought and create a whole story, a world around it, or to struggle against it. Just allow it to pass. Staying even and calm. And as the mind goes off onto a thought, just bring it back to the breath. <coughs> now even bringing your awareness to the sounds in the room that you might be hearing. Uh, my voice, a cough, someone moving, any sound within your body. And notice how they arise and passes away. See if you can just create a vast space, spaciousness, where sound can come in and go out. And being aware of this room filled with other individuals. You're not alone. People you know, people you don't know.
just this open awareness. Reaching all the way out to the land, this place, Spirit Rock. An awareness of the quietness, awareness of the silence. Touching all of these places with our awareness. And anchoring back on the breath. Feeling that tranquility and alertness. Tranquil and alert.
again, bringing the awareness back, back to the breath. Just begin again. It's the practice of beginning again and again and again. So we'll um, take a break in just a minute and um, just to remain seated for a minute. And just during that 15 minute break, the invitation for calm and tranquility, for alertness. And the, the simple intention for moment to moment awareness during the break time. You can and invite the gentle awareness of standing up, of standing and walking. And uh, allow every moment, every moment on this retreat to be a moment of practice that can support carrying that practice through to the whole of our lives. So we'll return in uh, 15 minutes. And can I ask someone to raise their hand to volunteer the bell, to ring the bell outside in 10 minutes? A bell ringer all the way in back. Thank you. So we'll have a 15 minute break now. And uh, we, haven't, uh, we haven't formally entered uh, quiet silence, but uh, Let's go ahead and maintain silence and begin to enter into silence now during this break. And we'll formally uh, enter into silence and when we come back.
do a uh, sound check as well before last folks come in. Can you hear me in back? Okay, thank you. I'm feeling great gratitude in being here with all of you, being here on this land with this teaching team. Spirit Rock has really been my spiritual home. Very first time I practiced meditation, first time ever receiving instructions was here at Spirit Rock, my first retreat. My first Metta loving kindness retreat was here with Sylvia. And Sylvia has been my much beloved teacher over the years, so uh, great to be with her, especially on the teaching team. So I was preparing notes for this retreat, pulling together quotes. I kept pulling out Sylvia quotes, <laughs> realizing, no, I shouldn't be quoting from Sylvia when Sylvia is sitting right here. <laughs> but that indicates the importance to me personally of uh, Sylvia as a, as a great teacher. So like Sylvia said, I, I felt coming onto the land, I think maybe more when I came onto the land than just turning onto Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, but coming onto the land, getting out of my car, feeling the groundedness, the calm, the ease, the tranquility of being here, of being present, for this practice, recalling too the, the many, many months of time I've spent here on retreats and teaching, and then as well feeling the gratitude for what this center and this place and this land have meant to me in my life. So we're taking refuge together for this short time in, in practice. But this incredibly valuable time that we're taking out of our lives to be here. And as a teacher and as a teacher for Spirit Rock and the Teacher Council, I want to emphasize that everyone is welcome. Everyone belongs here at Spirit Rock without exception, regardless of gender, gender identity, sexual preferences, race, ethnicity age, economic position, all belong. And that is very much consistent with the Buddhist teachings, that the teachings were offered to all in his time. So we're taking refuge together and uh, really want to support 
a space of, of safety, support a sense of community, so that in effect we're supporting one another in this practice. It's an amazing thing, this practice, that it's survived for 2,600 years, that the teachings of the Buddha, Buddha as a human being who fully realized the truth of the way things are, awoke, awake, as Sylvia said, the Buddha, he chose to share the precious teachings and were practicing with the teachings that he offered 2,600 years ago. So it always inspires great confidence in this practice for me to know how this practice has been carried forward so seamlessly over this long period of time. And in the tradition of the practice, we'll take refuge. We'll take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, the truth of the way things are, and take refuge in the Sangha, a community of practitioners. So in taking refuge in the Buddha, you can think of the Buddha as, of course, being the historical figure who fully realized the truth brilliant psychologist. He's, I think modern psychology is still catching up with his complete understanding of the workings of the mind. We take refuge in the Buddha who realized the truth, who chose to share the precious teachings. We can also understand this as taking refuge in the Buddha within. The seed that is within every one of us to awaken fully could say to awaken to Buddha nature. You can take it whichever way you prefer or both. And then taking refuge in the Dharma, the Dharma being the truth of the way things are. A beautiful thing about this practice is that Buddha didn't ask practitioners to believe a set of beliefs or edicts. The Buddha taught a practice for directly realizing the way things are, directly realizing the truth. Not his truth, not the Buddhist truth, just the Dharma, the truth of the way things are. The realization of that that leads in the direction of a great peace, a great happiness, that's not dependent on any external condition of the world not dependent on finances, health, relationships. This is the direction of the path of practice. It is so immediate. We do open with practice in small ways and bigger and bigger ways to this happiness that is not conditional, not conditioned on the physical conditions of the world. And we take refuge in the Sangha. You can think of the Sangha here as being the community of practitioners here on retreat. That we're here together, supporting, caring one another, even in silence. Really honoring the deepest intentions that we all bring into practice. We can also think of the Sangha as being the lineage of those who have carried forward these teachings 
seamlessly for this 2600 year period. Kind of the amazing thing um, is the way these teachings were carried forward for the first couple hundred years that monks memorized the talks the Buddha had offered because there was no written language. So for the first couple hundred years, the carrying forward of volumes of Buddha's teachings were dependent on renunciants who memorized those words so they could be passed on to future generations. So together we take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma and we take refuge in the Sangha. And we also undertake precepts, again, following the practice that has been undertaken by practitioners uh, since the time of the Buddha. We undertake five precepts. It could really be simply stated as do no harm. But they're a little bit more specific and can, in being more specific, they can support this practice of doing no harm and support the space of safety and the sense of community. So the first precept is refraining from taking the life of other beings. This can really be refined in terms of especially bugs that can get into our rooms, into spaces, but even honoring the life of every being on this land great refinement of practice. And it's interesting to see how even the animals of this land seem to know this is a safe place. The way the the turkeys that Sylvia talked about or the deer, I notice it with the birds too. Sometimes they're not afraid of humans in the same way they are in other places. You'll see uh, turkeys at walk very close to you perhaps on this time, or deer. Um, I've seen many hummingbirds when I'm walking very slowly come to a bush just one, one foot away from where I'm walking. The animals seem to know this is a safe space. The second precept of only taking that which is, um, only taking that which is freely offered. So only taking the food that's freely offered. Um, making sure as a refinement on this that uh, the following of the guidelines on returning to the food line for seconds or um, taking offerings from the special needs table. But honoring and refining that practice. And then the ref- uh, precept of refraining from sexual activity. So during this time period on retreat, the intention of refraining from any sexual activity and even putting forth sexual energy, to be mindful of putting forth sexual energy, to uh, not, not do that as a way of protecting safety and community. And the precept of silence. And we, we kind of informally entered silence during the break, but we'll more formally enter silence as uh, we formally take the precepts together. And this precept of silence can include, I encourage including, refraining from the use of cell phones. Um, So 
when I'm on retreats, uh, I like to turn off my cell phone completely, put it in my suitcase, slide it under the bed so I don't even see it. So even if you're used to using your cell phone as an alarm clock, you can know you're putting a temptation on your table if you use it as an alarm clock. I remember one time being on a retreat here about 10 years ago, and I really thought that I needed to have my cell phone turned on so I could check messages because of something going on at work. So a 10-day retreat, every two hours I was checking for messages. <laughs> Finally got it at the end of the retreat. I might as well have not have been here. I really, it was that damaging to the continuity of practice. So you've made a precious commitment to being here. Such an incredible opportunity to be in silence for this time, to, to deepen practice and to support the caring forward of this practice more deeply into your, into your whole life by being here. But honoring your commitment by, by setting aside uh, the cell phone, if at all possible. And then the precept of not using any recreational drugs or alcohol. So if, uh, of course, if you're using and need taking medication, this is, this is not the time to experiment with not taking it. So please remain on any medication that, that you're taking. So in the tradition of the practice, we'll be taking the precepts together in a call and response form. And um, so I'll say one part of the phrase and we'll say that phrase together. Of course, if you choose not to participate in, in the chanting, that's also fine. So I undertake the precepts. I undertake the precept to refrain from, to refrain from harming other living beings, harming other living beings. I undertake the precept, I undertake the precept to refrain from, refrain from taking that which is not freely offered, taking that which is not freely offered. I undertake the precept undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity, to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the precept, undertake the precept to refrain from any form of speech, refrain from any form of speech. I undertake the precept, undertake the precept to refrain from the use of intoxicants, from the use of intoxicants. I'll sit for a few moments in silence just to let that settle in and then I'll say a few more words.
So to say too that um, while we formally entered into silence, there will be some opportunities to ask questions in the hall. Of course, if you need to speak uh, to the managers in the manager's office, um, that's also fine. And there may be times when you need to um, perhaps whisper to someone you're performing a yogi job in the kitchen with or to talk to a cook very quietly. So. so these practices, these precepts of non-harming are aspects of both the Eightfold Path factors of both right action and right speech. This path of practice that Sylvia spoke to that leads in the direction of peace. The peace that's possible in any moment with this practice, with this simple practice of present awareness. And these factors of right speech, right action, also right livelihood, are the three factors that are called sila or morality, sila being from the language of the Buddha, Buddha, Pali, P-A-L-I. It's often translated as morality. I personally prefer the word harmony. The word morality can have the charge of a specific set of edicts or rules that may not fit a particular time, may not fit a particular culture. The Buddha's uh, guidelines on seal of non-harming actually provide some flexibility for changes in cultural norms, but the underlying principle of, of non-harming in speech and action are very key to the teachings and the practice. I prefer the word harmony because all of us want to be in the world in a way that is harmonious, harmonious with our own hearts. We're in the world in a way that is kind, that is compassionate, that's not causing harm to other beings. So when we practice sila, we're practicing bringing forth this harmonious quality of the heart. And then we're in harmony with other beings. We're in harmony with society. So you could think of these qualities as really being innate to our own hearts, innate to awareness itself. But we bring the practice of mindfulness to cultivating these factors of, of sila, of non-harming. And we'll be talking probably more about uh, sila in the next uh, two days as well. The understanding of sila also recognizes that actions have consequences. In the Buddhist understanding, every action has a consequence. This is actually the law of karma. 
a beautiful quote from uh, Ruth Dennison, who was the first, I think one of the first women teachers in the insight meditation in the West. Uh, her the definition of, of uh, karma is you don't get away with nothing. So every action has a consequence. So over my own path of practice, this has become more and more refined. It, it can seem so simple, these principles of non-harming. It becomes more and more important as every action in life matters. And that's why the practice is so important for the whole of our lives. And before every action, there's an intention. If we have, if we're stand, standing up from our cushions or our chairs, there's an intention to stand up. Right now there's an intention to listen, to be present. So we talk, we'll be talking a lot about the importance of right intention, another eightfold path factor. And I really brought this more fully into my practice starting about 10 years ago when I decided that I, I guess it was 12 years ago, I decided I needed to bring the practice into the whole of my life. I returned from a uh, six-week retreat, six weeks of silence. I'd been doing a lot of retreats. I'd been had a lot of practice uh, time on silent retreats. Did a lot of sittings from home, very regular, dedicated in my sitting practice. But there's kind of a disunity between my practice on retreat, on the cushion, and the rest of my life. When I returned from that retreat, I felt like I, I needed to quit my job, dedicate myself to the practice. But it wasn't, wasn't in the cards. I had a partner who is now my husband that I've been with for 24 years now. And... Uh, Wanted to stay with my partner. I wasn't ready to give it all up to become a monk. And I actually had a job that I liked. But I decided, well, I'm just going to have to bring the practice into the whole of my life. Of course, Sylvia had been telling me that for 10 years. <laughs> but I finally got it. I had to realize it directly. And the key way that I started to bring the practice fully into my life was with the right intention. Three key aspects of right intention. The intention of letting go. Letting go of things needing to be other. For me and my job, it meant letting go of the one need, needing to be in control. Of needing to achieve or get somewhere in my job and my career in order to be happy. I could still have goals and plans in life and in work, but I could let go around the outcome, not be attached to the outcome. Kind of like having preferences in life, but not being attached to the outcome. So letting go. Second aspect of loving kindness, of goodwill. Really bringing the intention of goodwill and kindness, benevolence into my practice, more fully into my life. And then the intention of non-harming following the practice of sila. And the intention of non-harming can naturally manifest as compassion, as great compassion. The compassion that recognizes suffering, our own suffering, or the suffering of others, and wishing it to end. So I started bringing the practice even into my work life. And I started, I was a boss in my job, I'm no longer in the job now, but uh, 
I was a boss and I started talking to employees in my workplace about kindness and goodwill and compassion. And they were a little surprised, like, what? This is work. But the practice is the whole of our lives and everyone, everyone wants kindness and caring and compassion in every part of our lives. I started getting, I started bringing a lot more happiness into my life, bringing a lot more happiness into the workplace when I started practicing in this way. I think my employees were probably a whole lot happier too. So the practice is for the whole of our lives. Maybe you'll get it sooner than I did. (laughs) Every moment, a moment of practice, the possibility of peace in any moment. When our hearts are not in contention with the present experience as it is. When we have this basic intention for kindness, for caring, supported by the practice of calm, tranquility, alertness, a basic practice of mindfulness that carries, carries us in practice, leads in the direction of this greater and greater happiness. So, turn it over now to Deshoda for some movement. Hi, am I, can you hear me in the back? I think that's our new, uh, our new motto. Can you hear me in the back? So begin by setting the intention for your body to stand up. And then the next instruction is watch how you do that. So see how you move from sitting down to standing and take your time. You know, slowness increases attention, increases awareness. So take your time to come from sitting to standing and watch how you do it. Am I tied in here? Okay. Hmm. I have a little thing here. (laughs) Hi. So just start by separating your feet out and rocking a little bit from side to side. Very simple. Bring your hands onto your hips and simply just let the body move. So I love when John talked about the practice of kindness and the practice of non-harming. And what we haven't mentioned yet is about to yourself. So how can you bring these practices, these really powerful practices, right here to your own heart? And the way in the movement practice that we do, that is by paying attention to what's true in this moment in your body. Because no matter what's being said to you, your body knows what it needs and what it has to do. Inhale your left arm up over your ear. And then press your left hip out and arc the body to the right. You can use your right hand to kind of press that hip away and then lean in that direction away from the hip. And then roll the heart up to the ceiling. Take a few breaths here and see what your body's saying. Does it want more or does it need to do less? 
Do you want to move in and out a little bit? So there's no static way to be. And then inhale the left arm up. Exhale, release it down by your side. Hmm. Take a moment to feel just the two sides, just the, the simple movement. As John also spoke about is uh, every action has a result, whether it's virtuous or not. So feel the results of the movement inside of your body. And then slowly inhale the right arm up. Bring it right in line with the ear. Begin to rock the hips a little bit from side to side. And then press that right hip out and begin to arc to the left. You can let your left hand ride down the side of your leg. Press out into the right hip and lean towards the left. Take a few breaths here, then roll the heart up. Open up. We're all practicing to find that peaceful place in the heart. Peace is possible right here, right now even in this form. And then slowly from the ground, inhale, the body back up, exhale, the arms down. Take a moment, close your eyes, feel into your body, and then feel the way you're standing. Are your feet externally rotated or are they internally rotated? There's no way that it needs to be, just become the observer, fully the observer of what is true right now. And then soften your knees. Just let the knees grow a little bit soft. And and then engage the quadriceps and the muscles in the front of the thigh and draw them up and feel what happens inside. And then relax them. I love that. In yoga, we always say, relax what you can. So what you're not using as you engage the muscles of the thighs, Engage the muscles, but relax what you're not using. Relax what you can. And then I loved how Sylvia started the whole day. It'll be all right. It'll just be all right. And relax the muscles of the legs. Hmm. As you exhale, bring your chin to your chest. Let your head drop. Feel the heaviness of the head. I like to step my feet a little bit like hip-width apart or maybe a little wider than hip-width apart. And feel the head become really heavy as if the crown of the head could be drawn down towards the earth. And then slowly, right from the very ground you're standing on, inhale and raise the head back up to center. As you exhale, lift the chin. Let the head fall back, but from the shoulder blades, not crunching the little cervical vertebra, but from the shoulder blades, which means the sternum is rising towards the sky. And then you can let your tongue come out. (sighs) Take one more breath here, full breath. Take advantage of the open heart and lung Hold the breath for just a nanosecond. Feel it inside. What's wholeness like? And then slowly, as you exhale, again from the very base, begin to inhale and draw the head back up to center. Take a moment to feel. So we call the the moments of feeling the dessert. First you make the action, and then you receive the chocolate. 
If you don't like chocolate, replace that idea with what you do like. Exhale, release your chin back down to your throat or back down towards the chest. Hmm. Take a couple breaths here and feel and visualize the back of your neck opening and spreading. The head grows heavier and heavier. The knees are soft. The belly is soft. So again, relax what you can. And then from the very ground, inhale the head back to center. As you exhale, lift the chin. Let the head fall gently back. Look all the way up to the, to the top of the ceiling. And then let your eyes roll back behind you. Take a breath here as the throat opens. And then inhale slowly and bring the head back to center. I love how you're all moving so slowly. Already it's like day five. Take a breath in. Let it out with a sigh. You're doing great. As you exhale, drop your right ear to your right shoulder. Now relax the shoulders down. Relax the belly. Feel the the fullness of your feet. So even if your head is what we're moving, you can still feel parts of your body that you're not moving. Inhale, lift it back to center. As you exhale, drop the left ear to the left shoulder. Here too, let the head grow really heavy. And then draw the right shoulder down. Hmm. Take a breath in the side here. And then inhale, come on back to center. Take a breath in between. Hmm. And then next exhale as it comes around, right ear to right shoulder. This time take your right hand up and take hold of your left ear. And then let the elbow be drawn down towards the ground. Whew. And you can begin to make little circles with your elbow, which will involve your neck and your head. Just little tiny circles, just moving right into that area. Right into any glitches that you feel, any tension, any sensation that's there. And then reverse the direction of that movement. Let the breath be synchronized, following movement and breath. And then come back to stillness and feel the, the whole head relax away. As you inhale, lift the right arm up and let the head come back to center and the right arm returns down. Then feel into the two sides of the neck. And then the left ear to the left shoulder. Just start there. Even though you know where we're going. (laughs) Wait! (laughs) Let the head get heavy. Let everything come in its time. Relax. It'll be okay. Inhale the left arm up. Take hold of the right ear. Now this time, relax that left shoulder down. Ha! And then feel the elbow be drawn towards the earth. So you can really open up the right side of the neck. And feel that. And then begin the little circles. And if the circles grow larger, that's okay. That's good. And if they stay tiny and small, that's really good too. 
So, you know, there's no time that isn't practice. And then reverse the directions. So, moving in our daily lives is part of the practice of paying attention, of being tranquil and alert. Release the movement, let the head grow heavier. And then as you inhale, raise the left arm up and back down to the sides. Hmm. Inhale your shoulders up to your ears. Now really crunch them. You know, get really tense here because you want to know what tension feels like. And then let that tension come all the way down through the arms. Make fists with your hands. Really grow the tension. And to add to it, take a breath in and hold it. Exhale. Oh, you all knew let to let go. And then bring your shoulders together in front of you. Really draw them forward. Inhale the shoulders up to the ears. Squinch it all. This time, widen the fingers. Get them really wide. Straighten out the elbows. Grow it tense everywhere. Squinch the face together. Take a breath. Hold it. Hold it. Ah, exhale. Let it go. Woo. We're almost there. Anybody feel energy moving and maybe the heart beating, maybe a little heat happening? Simple and so profound. Draw the shoulder blades together behind you. (sighs) Really reach for the shoulder blades to reach each other and then tuck them down as if they would tuck under the back of the heart. Nice. This time, open your mouth, open your eyes, get your tongue out. And then exhale and release it all. Woo! Feel the, what's happening inside so that every moment you're not only aware of the external world, but you're very aware of the internal world. And that's the way we observe the habits that we have. Drop your chin to your chest and just begin to roll the upper spine down slowly. You can bring your hands onto your hips. If the if there's any tension in the lower spine, draw the the belly, make a, a draw the abdominals up toward the navel to help with that. Soften the knees, almost like a bend in the knees, and let the body come about halfway down. You can let your arms hang down or you can take hold of your elbows with your opposite hands and let that movement continue to take the body all the way down to the ground or near the earth. Hmm. And here's a good time to to let go of any unwholesome feelings inside of you by taking a breath in and exhale with a sigh. Ah. Letting go of anything you don't need to be here present and alert. One more breath in here. Hold that breath in. Draw the belly in. As you exhale, allow the body to soften even more. (sighs) Bring your hands to your hips. Here it's important to draw the abdominals in and get strong in the core Lengthen the upper torso out and then lift the torso back up to standing. 
Yeah. Whew. One more movement before we sit again. And that is bring your hands behind you so that they're resting right at the top of the sacrum where the heel of your hand is and the fingers pointing down. And then begin to draw the sacrum, which is that part just below the waist, that little triangular bone. Draw the sacrum down towards the backs of the knees. As you do that, draw the elbows toward each other behind you. As you do that, lift the sternum up towards the heavens. And then if it feels comfortable, allow your chin to lift or you can keep your neck in line with the spine. Take a few breaths here. Opening the heart, opening the space in the lung, opening your capacity for life. What we do here in movement is strengthen the container. From the ground, inhale. And from the very bottom of the spine, lift the body up, meaning the head comes up last. Hmm. Take a breath and feel into the space inside of you. Hmm. And then shake out one leg and shake out the other and shake out your hands and your hips. and Get it loosey-goosey. Whew! Thank you. Now set the intention to come down to your seat and notice what you do to get there and how you bring yourself to sit. You can begin. I was enjoying the thought that I had. I remembered I had asked you a few hours ago, about two hours ago, do you feel better now than um, when you arrived or when you got up this morning? And generally people said yes. So I just as a process statement, I want to tell you I feel better now after we've been together uh, two hours. And I'm very glad for the prospect of the time that we yet have together. And I am so enjoying the, uh, the manifestation of the plan we had to teach one message 
and pass it back. You know, it's kind of like basketball where you pass it to somebody else and they move the ball a little bit and then the next person advances the ball and every once in a while somebody really makes a point with a basket. <laughs> Sometimes a three-pointer, but mostly we are advancing the, we're advancing the idea that the whole of life, every single moment of it, is an opportunity to say, where is my mind? How is my mind? How is my body? And am I awaken it in this moment and using it? I so love that story of, uh, if you're not an ordinary person, who are you? I'm awake. I'm awake to those four uh, good ideas. And I'm awake also to the three insights. You know, when uh, John said in the very beginning that uh, for 300 years, I think, after the Buddha's life, people were just telling each other what he had said. It was an enormous amount to memorize. Sometimes when you think about uh, children who play telephone at a birthday party, and there are just 10 people whispering a phrase to each other. And you think by the 10th person, cupcake turned on, turns into toothbrush or something. So you wonder, how did they preserve these teachings? But they did. They, many of them begin, thus have I heard, and then they tell the Buddha then said. In some of the earliest stories about that, by the way, they would there'd be a story about the Buddha came to such and such a place and uh, he said uh, that they just after the meal or whatever he said gather around and then he taught about this and that and the other and he said and then at the end of um, at the end of his teaching it would say that he could look around and he could see that people felt edified and in especially in the beginning of the early teachings People got completely awakened just from listening to the Buddha. You know, we sometimes think it's going to take years of meditation or years of cloistered practice or years of something. And here people just heard a Dharma talk and that was it. And those particular accounts end with the words, and uh, behind the eyes of 80 townspeople, arose the, speck, the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. It means they're altogether free. Never again in their hearts and minds will greed, hatred, and delusion arise. And I think, isn't it, that's like so astounding. I, so I, I tell you that, first of all, I'd like to tell that story. Second of all, I think to myself, it's so clear to me that it makes the point, again, as Kanda said, we use the word practice so many times and people think about we having a practice as closing your eyes and being quiet. Everything is practice. Listening to a Dharma talk is practice. Uh, being coming annoyed with the person who's sharing the dishwashing duties with you because they do it too fast or too slow and getting over your annoyance is a practice. It's maybe a more of a practice than liking what's going on, actually. But every single moment is an opportunity to notice what is my mind doing and how is my body feeling, and I have a choice about how to respond to it. Then I think to myself, I also thought over the years of my practice, every once in a while I'd sit down to listen to a Dharma talk, and I would think to myself, you know, there's a precedent for people all of a sudden 
being completely freed of greed, hatred, and delusion. Maybe it could happen. Just listening to a Dharma talk could happen to me right now. So I tried to, you know, whoa, I'm really going to pay attention. You know, this is, this is serious. Many of my friends who had really breakthrough experiences of understanding, it didn't happen on their cushion. It happened on a lunch line or it happened... Uh, with some missing a plane, or it happened sitting in a terminal. So I was really grateful for Kanda's use of the word practice and that we say it all the time. And I, uh, I love it that people get the idea that there's no time, that's downtime. Upandita is a Burmese contemporary meditation teacher. He's still alive, isn't he, John? Upandita. I think so, but he's not traveling anymore, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, I, I had the good fortune of studying with him, I don't know, 25 years ago maybe, being in a retreat in which he was one of the visiting teachers, and I got to have a, a, a one-on-one meetings with him. And he would ask, when you came into a one-on-one meeting, he would say, What's your experience when you're sitting? And then you'd say, well, I sit and I'm paying attention for a while and I'm really alert and present. And then after a while, I start to sleep and then I wake up and then I feel bad that I fell asleep and then I get over that and I reassure myself. And then I'm again, I'm not with the breath, but then I lose the breath. And then, I'm, But I'm listening to sounds, but it's all right if I listen to sound. And, but you tell about what's happening while you're sitting. And then he would say, tell me what your experience is when you're doing walking practice, because as Jashoda will share with you tomorrow morning, there's a certain stylized walking practice that is traditional as one of the movements that goes along with sitting practice. And he'd say, How's your, what's your experience when you're walking? And you'd say, this, this, and this. And then he'd say, what's your experience in the in-between times? And then you get to realize that the in-between times is every, part, every time else that you are sitting or walking. The times that you're taking a shower or eating, or uh, it says in the uh, suttas, uh, whether you're uh, sitting or walking, responding to the call of nature, which means responding to the call of nature. <laughs> and also, I think it, I take it to mean taking your shower, lying down when your back hurts, when you're ministering to your body. In all those times... So there is no time. Then I got the the understanding. There is no downtime. It's all practice. And the practice is not doing the act of anything, not the act of walking, the act of eating. It's the practice of noticing when there are unwholesome mind states present, like I'm really hatching some revenge about somebody who said something. Not, not. Anybody ever have that? Somebody, anybody ever has hatching revenge? So I want you to think about hatching revenge is a really unpleasant feeling, isn't it? (laughs) So when you catch yourself busily, first of all, it's not doing anything except polluting your own mind because nobody else, the person you're hatching the revenge against doesn't know you're doing it. You are just thinking these mean-spirited thoughts. But the, the, the crucial time in practice is when the awareness arises that hatching revenge is unpleasant. It's really painful that they begin to be dropped as a practice. And you catch yourself, as John said, began to see the whole of life, and you catch yourself 
when you're not being pleasant or polite. That um, when John was doing the precepts, I was thinking about, we didn't sing them in Pali, but that's great, that's fine, because most of us are not familiar with it. But the best line in Pali is at the end of the, of the chanting, because after you've said them all, you chant, may these precepts be the cause of happiness. And it's a lovely understanding, we'll talk more about it as we go on, that behaving with sila is actually the cause of happiness. You don't feel bad about yourself, you don't feel ashamed or embarrassed or frightened. It's all practice. The, um, the, when Jashoda was leading us a minute ago and talking again about the different pra- the practice of feeling your mind let go of whatever else it's thinking about and just feeling the pleasure of letting go. And the pleasure of feeling your body, if it's tense, relax. And that we know the difference between tense and relaxed. I was once teaching many years ago a sixth grade class in um, uh, a sixth grade class in Marin County. I got invited to teach there because my grandson at that point it's a long time ago was in the sixth grade now he's thirty one years old, <laughs> so quite a lot of time has happened since that class, but I'm a local. So And they were studying India, and so they studied the Buddha. And they invited me, and I wanted to present mindfulness as quite an ordinary practice, because when I got there, they asked questions about, uh, we see in, the, uh, in our textbook here, people who are walking in, on hot coals. Do you get that from meditating that you could? And I said, this is, you know, some people, they can meditate so much that they have such uh, um, focused that their attention is so focused that they have different kinds of uh, anesthesias in their body and they can't feel discomfort in the way that otherwise they might. But that's not what we're doing. We're learning to pay attention. And somebody said, you know, people here in this, in this picture, they're lying on a bed of nails. How about that? I said, well, that's not what we're doing. They also have that focused attention, but so they can't feel their body. But this is really about just knowing what's going on, how helpful it is to be paying attention and alert to the feelings of your people in your class and that you don't get distracted and you don't not hear the teacher giving the homework. That's what it's about. It's regular. One ch- And then I, I, I talked on and on. I tried to talk on and on about the, the values of paying attention. And uh, somebody said, one boy said, uh, Colin told us that you once met a woman who was a famous meditation teacher who could walk through walls. <laughs> is that true? So I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, it is. I, you know, there was a woman in India. She lived in Calcutta. Um, she was a teacher of my teachers. And at one point, my teachers brought her to the United States and toured her around and had her meet people in different big cities who were practitioners. She actually stayed in my house for a week. So they said, did you see her walk through any walls? I said, no, I didn't. But, you know, my teachers told me so. But you know what I saw her do? I saw her be tranquil and alert all the time. And I don't know about the walk through walls business. It's not so necessary to walk through walls because we have doors. (laughs) 
So to keep your mind tranquil and alert is actually a hard thing. And to keep your heart good. She was very well known for teaching loving kindness. And she said, there are only three things in my mind at any time. Concentration and loving kindness and peace. What was that third one, John? Did I just get that right? Deepama. What was the third one? Ha, ha, ha. All right. Two of them, at least. I'm sure it's concentration. Concentration, loving kindness, and peace. Pretty sure. Why we're doing this is because it's hard to have a peaceful mind in a world that's full of what's going on. And it's hard to have a peaceful mind in a body, with a, with a body, because it hurts and it doesn't hurt and it hurts and it doesn't hurt. And it's got all kinds of recurring needs in the best of health it has recurring needs. The biggest thing that it is hard to stay comfortable about is that life is so um, contingent. The fact that we're all here is a miracle. And the fact that everyone, as long as we have not been bereft of somebody in this lifetime, bereaved of somebody yet, we will be sometime. And they will be bereaved of us. And many of us, especially older folks, have lost lots of people in their life. And it's a worry all through the life. What would I do? I could never manage if I lost so-and-so, or I lost so-and-so, or I lost so-and-so. A very famous Buddhist story is about a woman whose son died and came to the Buddha and said, um, brought the lifeless body of her son and said, I heard that you were a miracle worker. Could you bring him back to life? And he said, I'll do that for you. If you can bring me a mustard seed from the ho a house where death has never happened. And of course, you can see that the end of the story is she goes off to find a house where death has never happened. And there is no house where death has never happened. Really, death is what happens in homes and to people. And she comes, and what she realized, when she realizes that, she not only realizes that this is what happens, but she also realizes the depth of suffering and compassion of all the people before and after her and around her who are losing people all the time. And that, in fact, we are all in line for being bereaved sooner or later of what's dear to us, our dear ones, our health, our plans, how to live with the sure awareness that bereavement is going to happen to us again and again and again and again and still want to have a life and still have the strength and the courage to go out and make it a better life for everybody else is really the point of what we're doing. And she became a disciple of the Buddha. So Ramona, come in. I'll say my last thing while you're sitting down. One of the little boys in that class said to me, um, it was, this was his question. It was a very good question. He said, uh, the problem with me, he said, I get it that it's good to be able to pay attention. But here's the problem. When I'm not paying attention, I don't know that I'm not paying attention. How do I know that I'm not paying attention when I'm not paying attention? And that's a very good question for a sixth grader. It's a very good question for all of us. And to be able to recognize I know what's going on or I don't is a major piece of this. I can't change my behavior or even intend to change it or even intend to be more aware of it 
without paying attention all the time. And it's very much, I think, that I was thinking about this as Jashoda was teaching. When there is tension in my body and tension in my mind, it's a sure sign that I have overlooked. I'm not paying attention to what's going on. Otherwise, out of natural compassion, I take care of it so that I'm, when I'm driving my car and clutching the steering wheel and hatching a bad th revenge on somebody, I suddenly go, what are you doing? Stop. What's this? You take your attention and you put it somewhere else. Somewhere else. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. Look at you, sweetheart. What are you doing to yourself? Okay, relax. It was, you know, it was a natural response. Don't worry. May I be peaceful and happy. May all beings be peaceful and happy. Phew. What we are actually trying for the mind to learn is that there is mind states that are not wholesome for it. That don't thrive, that we don't thrive, and we suffer, unwholesome, and that they can be converted into wholesome ones, and that that's a possibility for all human beings, not particular fortunate or amazing or talented people, for regular people. Peace is possible in this life with this body, this story, this world. This is Ramona, who's come back to do some more give you some instructions will make your mind feel more at peace to know what you need to be aware of in the event of any things you haven't planned on. on. <laughs> I didn't trust the light. So wow, this practice is so amazing. I walked into the room and I was like, <gasps> already settling. So I'm like, let me just settle a bit too so that I don't uh, shock you. <laughs> oh, you can't. Oh, now can you hear me? Okay, I was practicing my lower voice. Thank you. So um, I'm going to uh, just speak to you about a few things that will help you or support you in living mindful and on mindfully on retreat. And um, again, Beth and I are your retreat managers. And so uh, you'll see both of us on the land. We're on duty. One of us is always on duty 24-7. The one that's on will be staying overnight here with you so we're always here even if you don't always see us one of us is available so I'm just going to speak a little bit about those types of things and you know Beth noted that uh you know we're we're both pretty long-term practitioners and we're uh this is part of our practice and we're happy to support you and um, practice with you so um, before I get into, well, you know, I'm just going to dive right in. It's all pretty logistical. We still need um, two bell ringers. Thank you for those who have already signed up. But we actually need someone to wake us all up at 6 a.m. each day. Just two days, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh, okay, thank you. What's your name? Natalie? With the H-I-E? No. I remember some things. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then we need one other person to 
ring the bell to let us know it's time to come for that first morning sit. And that would be at 6.20 a.m. for both days. Is there another early bird in the house? Oh, thank you. Oh, I didn't see who. Yes, what's your name? Kristen. What's your last name, Kristen? Thank you. So if um, both Kristen and Natalie, what's your last initial? I should have just asked. What is it? V, thank you. Um, I should have asked you just for your initial too, so I apologize for um, If you can come by the manager's office, which is the office next door to the council house where you checked in with us and got your room assignments, if you can come in on your way down to dinner, we'll give you the bells and the instructions for them, okay? Thank you. Um, one more thing we need is someone to monitor the shades. Basically, when the sun is shining in too bright, we need you to pull it down. When... It's not shining, we need you to have them up. And you only have three shades to monitor because the other ones are broken. So <laughs> it would be the two outer shades. No, no. Well, you, I'll figure it out. I'll put a sign up. There's three shades. Three, the other ones don't work. I'll have to, uh, yes, what's your name? Anita, again, thank you. And you can also come by the office, and then I'll explain and clarify which ones work and which ones don't. But you'll just kind of, you know, if it's shining in everyone's eye, no, they're manual. Um, or I can show you quickly after, uh, after this, before dinner. Okay. Anita. And the last initial? E. Thank you. All right. So um, speaking of bells, that's how you know that it's either time to wake up or come to a sit. So there'll be a morning bell every morning. It'll be rung through the, all of the dorms on the first floor. And the same thing for the one to tell you to come to the first sit. During the day after that, when you're out, the large bell outside will be rung 10 minutes before each sit. And you'll know when you hear the bell, you'll know it's time to come in and get settled for your sit. So thank everyone for doing um, the bells. You also have alarm clocks in your room if you need to set an alarm for yourself to wake up. And uh, all of the schedules are posted in all of the dorms and out here in the foyer and down in the dining hall as well. So if you need to look, you can. Otherwise, hear a bell and you'll know it's either time to sit or walk or eat. Well, we don't ring a lunch bell, but if you're in here... You know, you'll hear a bell, you'll know what to do. So really, again, going back to living mindfully on retreat, we actually have a document that's posted on the back of each dorm door, and it's called Living Mindfully on Retreat, or something close to that. So I invite you to all review that, even if you've been here many times or if it's your first time, so that you could be uh, more comfortable in the meditation community and also, uh, if you're following those guidelines, you'll also be supporting each other as Sangha members while you're here in community practicing. If you, if you have any questions about the guidelines, you can always either leave Beth or I a note or come to our office and we can clarify. Another thing we do in support of the community is to try to prevent the spread of, you know, germs to each other so we like to do what we call the vipassana sneeze and cough so you'll just cough or sneeze into the crook of your elbow that way you don't get it on your hands and we can keep everyone safe and healthy 
So you can come to the manager's office in the event of an emergency or something urgent. And again, I said one of us is always on call. If we're not in there, we'll have a sign posted to tell you how to reach us, which will basically be to use our office telephone so that you can call us on our cell phone. So we do carry a cell phone for emergencies. The other thing is our room numbers will be posted up for the night time. So whoever is on overnight will have the room number on there. We're both in Meta, which is the first building. So you can also come and knock on our door for something, an emergency or something urgent. Use your discernment. If you hear snoring, you can work with the, practice with the sounds and let us know. And, you know, just, you know, if, but if you have a real emergency, come and see us, knock on the door and do wake us up and, Knock firmly, for me anyway, because I sleep deeply. And, yeah, and you'll just stay by the phone and we'll either call back the manager's office telephone or either we'll come meet you in the office in a few minutes. Our office also serves as a pharmacy, so if there are any items that you may have forgotten or if you brought scented products and knowing that we're in a fragrance-free community uh, or fragrance-free meditation center, you can come to our office and we have things like soaps and lotions and sunscreen. It runs on the honor system, so you're welcome to uh, run a tab and just make a donation at the end of retreat. There are also phones in each of the residence halls that are for specific emergencies to call 911 in the event of a, the rare event of an emergency in the evening. So we are in noble silence, and thank you for those of you who have actually physically renounced your digital devices and others for making sure that they stay off because we're a digital-free zone, Wi-Fi-free zone. If you do um, need to turn yours in still, you can always bring it to the manager's office, and we'll lock it up in a safe for you. We communicate um, by a note system. So we will, if we need to get in touch with you, we'll leave you a note. If you need to get in touch with us, you can leave us a note. And also if you need to get in touch with, um, if you have a specific note for a teacher, you can leave the teachers a note. And if there are uh, maintenance situations, for example, a light is out, you can leave them, us a note as managers as well. So in the bulletin, I mean, in the foyer, you notice that we have three or four bulletin boards. The one, if you're leaving the hall, the one furthest away to your left will say notes for yogis. Then there's a slim board that says managers, and you can leave notes for us there. Then there'll be a board eventually with teachers' names on it, and you can leave notes for teachers there. Please be sure to sign your notes with your first name and last initial. Otherwise, we won't know how to get back to you. And please check the board maybe once a day in case we need to reach you. And in fact, there are already three notes posted. I have a note for uh, Cynthia H, Lydia S, and Ernie B. So if you can check those as you leave the hall for dinner um, and come to the office for details about them, that would be great. So we ask that you keep all of your blankets and everything in your dorm inside your dorm. It's been pretty warm, but if you should need something warmer, we often have extra blankets in the foyer, which also stay in the buildings. And that's because we are sharing the land with other beings, as we always are. And we like to keep those beings in their environments. Should you encounter a being, we have um, things to take the beings out and put them back in the land, 
on the land with. If a being is on you and you need help, come to the office and we'll help you um, get that being taken care of. <laughs> we ask that you not prop doors open because, again, we're trying to keep the beings that live outdoors outdoors. And that includes, um, you know, the dorm doors on the hall, on the ends of the buildings, even when it gets hot. There's also signage on the board, so please read the signs about the types of beings that we like to give you information on, and um, so you can be mindful about it's out there. Please do read that. Um, yeah. There's some California-specific things that you need to be mindful of. I don't know. Should I get more specifics, Sylvia? Or that good enough? <laughs> I'm really grateful to Ramona. I said, you know, I know that legally and ethically we need to say to people that every once in a while somebody sees a mountain lion. And so she'll tell you right away what to do if you see it or where to read about it in the hall, what to do if you see it. But we always announce it the first thing when people arrive. And I said, you know, we're trying to say for people, look, soothe, tranquil, alert, by the way, look out for the ticks and the mountain lions and the poison ivy and the poison oak. And in case you walk, the dehydration, what? Snakes. All of those are here. But first of all, you have to worry too much because it's our plan, all four of us, to be in here with you for all our meeting times from now till the end. So you don't have that much time to go around and get in trouble with all those beings. <laughs> but they are here and we have to tell you about it legally and R Ramona will tell you what to do. Um, but I have been on this land since before there was a building on it frequently and on retreat frequently and I never saw a lion. Did you, John? You did. <laughs> Up close? Was it doing something worrisome? Chasing a deer. Chasing a deer. That's bad. Actually, sometimes they, we won't tell those stories. But they don't chase people. I don't think. Hmm? They run away. If you run, they will run. So you don't. You're supposed to make yourself big and stand still. And Anyway, now that we frighten everybody because we'll be mostly in here. Don't go too far up. I mean, if you want to walk up some... No, just because we'll be all the time here. There's no time. The, the, the schedule is very tight. You have no time to go anyplace. And we are all here all the time, so we'll know if you're not here, see? I only have a couple more things. Go. So since she mentioned it, um, just make sure you brush yourself off before coming into buildings so that, you know, if you d did give a tick a ride, you could just brush it off. But come see us, like she said, and we can help you with, you know, we can, we can just help you manage your encounter. <laughs> this is challenging. I'm challenging myself. Not using my normal spiel. <laughs> Mindfulness. Um, so this is the main meditation hall. And this is where your uh, practices will be. Just showed, are you doing your movement in here? Okay, so your movement will be in here. 
and outside. So we have two other halls. We have an upper walking hall, if there's time for walking meditation, which is only to be used for walking meditation. And there are signs on it to do the short distance so more, more people can fit. And if you do have your own movement practice, there's a lower walking hall. You can, outside the back courtyard, those stairs right over there, go downstairs, and that place um, is separated. There's one side with all the yoga and movement equipment. That's for movement practice. And the other side is also for walking meditation. Uh, so basically, we, own, you, you're, we ask you only to do movement in here when it's led by a teacher. Otherwise, this room is for um, sitting meditation and other meditation practices. So no personal movement practice in the main hall is, or upstairs is basically the simple way to say it. And we ask that you please come on time to the sits and so that you can be settled and you'll hear the bell again 10 minutes before. The Dharma talks and instructional sits will be recorded and uh, we will offer you information on how to access that um, way down the line when it's time to talk about those things. But just so you don't have to worry if you like me, if you space out and go, oh my God, what was that talk? You know, it's recorded for you. Also, we ask that you put your uh, shoes in the cloakroom. There's little cubbies. So if you could put your shoes in the cloakroom, that would be great. And you'll see, you may see teachers having and managers having their shoes out there, but we'd like the majority of the shoes to be in the little cubbies. So another thing about California land is uh, fire danger and dry land. So if you do practice smoking meditation, we ask that you only do it in the smoking hut, which is down the hill behind the stone Buddha near the uh, dining hall. And there are no um, candles or incense allowed in your dorms or anywhere else on the land except in here. And we'll have those lit. Yes, yeah, so, um, oh, one other announcement. There is a Toyota Corolla LE. California license plate 5RF as in Frank G899. We need you to repark your vehicle. If you go, is that, I don't want to have, I don't need to call you out, but if you're in here and you go down to check your car, you'll notice that you're actually parked in the uh, driveway where people would need to get out of the lot. So we need you to just pull in snug into the rows. Okay. Um, yeah. That's actually it, 501. Hey, you did it. <laughs> so uh, thank you. And if you have any questions, again, please do feel free to just approach Beth or I. We'll be happy to support you. Thank you very much, Ramona. I'm thinking about uh, planning this moment for the next 15 minutes because then we go to have dinner. And I'm thinking about our overall plan of talking all the time, of being able to make a, an assessment of what's happening, what's going on, and what should I do. I say to people, the practice of mindfulness, uh, people will say sometimes, they'll preempt it, and they'll say, it's be here now. Know what's happening now. Well, that's half of it, really. Know what's happening now. First of all, that's the only thing you can be sure about anyway with what's happening now. But I think it, the whole complete definition is really know what's happening now, holding it in a balanced way so you can see it clearly, 
in order. And then I say to people, that's the main point of this whole thing. It's not just to know what's happening now, because if you're skiing down a hard side of a, of a steep mountain, it's important to know what's happening now. You can't let your mind wander here or there. You have to pay attention. If you're playing a piano recital for a thousand people, you have to be here now because you make a mistake otherwise. You need to be proficient at what you're doing anytime, a practitioner or not a practitioner. When you're doing something that requires precision for safety or for being able to complete it, you need to be here and know what's happening. I think of my whole life, though, it's being able in every moment to assess what's happening and what can I do that will maybe make it better or at least not make it worse. I think we are being uh, practicing cultivating awareness, balanced, focused awareness, balanced, keen, clear-seeing awareness in every moment so that we will be able to assess the moment and know what would be, what we could do. How could I respond to this that would not create suffering for anybody, myself or anybody else? And that might, uh, and that would be wholesome. Sometimes uh, I like to quote the the Buddha's teaching to his son, Ananda, where he said, um, before doing anything, Ananda, you should think to yourself, uh, is what I'm about to do for the benefit of myself as well as others? And if it's okay, then go ahead and do it. Otherwise, don't do it. And in the middle of doing something, Ananda, you should think to yourself, is what I'm doing for the benefit of myself and other people? And if you are, continue. And if you're not, stop doing it. And if you complete an action, finished, and you, could, you should say to yourself, one should reflect thus, is how it's written in the sutta, uh, is what I just did for my benefit as well as for everybody else's benefit. And if it is fine, and if it isn't, go back, make amends, do it over, may make a correction. And often when I tell it to people for the first time, they said that they say that would be such a staccato life. You would never like relax and just live a life because if before and during and after an action you had to stop, is it, will it be, is it, was it, that you really, what, what, what's that to do with spontaneous living? But the, uh, can you figure out that the end of that is if your intention, if your heart is already turned in such a way that it holds the primacy of well-being for all beings as well as myself as where it's going, it doesn't have to stop every second to figure out because then it naturally chooses that. Because if, if, if I find that, not that I'm perfect at it, but I'm, we're all practicing till the end. So I don't notice immediately that my arms are tense and I'm hatching or something, but soon I notice it. Then sooner maybe than before. And then you stop, you unhatch it, you do something else. I think what we're doing is we're catching up with ourselves evolutionarily. I've been reading a quite interesting book this week called Sapiens. And it's about uh, uh, the, what we are, homo sapiens, people walking around looking like these kinds of bodies for the last significant number of millennia. And uh, t and the person who's written it has quite an extraordinary grasp of uh, 
anthropology and archaeology and uh, biological data about how civilizations arise, how the world works, how the first people were different from uh, uh, hunters and gatherers and how agriculture started and how well, each of these represented a big change in the development, presumably, of what we call the modern world and modern people. And he makes a really important point that when people lived in a way earlier time and were hunter-gatherers, they lived in communities, probably not more than 150 people, because it worked out that that's the most people that you can keep track of and know everybody in the community and bond to because they're all in the community. And he said the great problem for human beings comes when they discover agriculture, which often people think, whoa, that was a brilliant thing to discover agriculture. They discover they can be in the same place. They can plant and reap and plant and reap. And they can thrive. But not every, every community thrived, but when they did, more people joined. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they, could, they didn't know everybody. So they, the natural cooperation, which he hypothesizes, was part of our ancient nature, that we cooperated naturally because we recognized everybody as being family, more or less, to us. We stopped being family, more or less. We have 10,000 people that you don't recognize them all. And he makes many, many turns around to get back to our bodies and our intellectual our brains that could build things and make things and do amazing things, that part of it really advanced. The part of it that evolutionarily has to catch up with developing our ability to cooperate. So the most important things human beings can do is cooperate with each other and then everybody will thrive. And I thought to myself, as John was saying earlier, that the Buddha had that understanding about Everybody is just like you. And therefore, to recognize that all beings suffer and have compassion because of it. So he said that we just have to keep human beings going long enough for their biological ability to empathize with other people, to catch up with their intellectual abilities. In the meantime, we are on a slow path. We're not doing it like from one moment to the next, except when we have wonderful insights about everybody is really just like me. That's what we'll be talking about all of this time. What are the fundamental insights? That everybody isn't me, but they're just like me. And just like me, they are in pain when they lose what's dear to them. They suffer when they lose what's dear to them. We'll talk more about that. What I want to talk in what is now five minutes is eating meditation. We're going to go and eat now, which is one of the, the, the three times that we eat a day are high-intensity, awake moments of the day. Nobody ever complains of get, getting sleepy in the middle of a meal, get sleepy in the middle of a long, hot afternoon or when they get up early in the morning. Nobody gets sleepy usually while eating or while approaching the dining room, because that's a high anticipatory time. What are they going to have? I hope they have good stuff. Oh, look what they have, broccoli. I don't like broccoli. 
look at that. We just had broccoli for lunch. There's broccoli again for dinner. What is this place? Just the broccoli. Look at that person. They took so much broccoli. I wonder why they like it. I don't like broccoli at all. Maybe I should have brought my own stuff. I see some people have their own stuff in the refrigerator. That's up on the table in the back. They have alternative stuff. Maybe I could check it out and see what it is. The mind gets hysterical in the, in, in the proximity of something that might be exciting and satisfying. And to be able to say to yourself on the way down, I'm not going to rush. I'm keeping myself tranquil and alert. And when I get there, I'll deal with it. If the whole entire meal is broccoli, I'll be okay about it. And as a matter of fact, I'll let everybody go in front of me. That's the, I'm practicing graciousness, but I'm actually quite hungry. And I heard that the evening meal is quite sparse, and that after this meal, I'm going to have to wait till the next morning. There's no, there isn't even a machine here where I could get a candy bar or anything in between. <laughs> Maybe I should have brought stuff. I see people brought stuff. There's a tea called Constant Comment Tea. And I think that I always think of it as, I don't think we serve that here in this place, but our minds do the constant comment for us. They hardly let us do anything without making a comment, say, this I like, this I don't like, this I like, this I don't like. We'll talk a whole lot more about the constant comment mind. The main thing to think about is the mind will comment from now till forever. I, mean, I really don't think that the mind thinks to itself, well... Easy come, easy. Whatever it is for dinner, it's all the same to me. It's not all the same to me. There are some things I like much better than other things. What I want to be able to do is say, oh, look, again, broccoli, but hey, tomorrow will be something else. I want my mind to be able to say, this is what's here. This is what I really like, or this is not what I really like. But it's just today, and tomorrow there will be other things here. That my my job is not to not have moments of discomfort, not have moments of dismay. My job is to be okay with the moments of discomfort, moments of dis dismay. How many people here had a moment of discomfort this whole day? We all do. It's like phooey, oh good, phooey, oh good. Oh, good, 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 look at that, phooey. I don't like that part. The mind is doing that all the time. Sometimes I say to people, watch that as you're going around, see how many phooeys and oh goods happen all the day, that can't make it, you know. Finally, you give it and say, look at that, look at that, wow, look at that. So, this is the One Heart Grace written by my friend Norman Fisher, who used to be the abbot of Zen Center. As we get ready to eat this food, we remember with gratitude the many people, tools, animals, and plants, air and water, sky and earth, turned in the wheel of living and dying whose joyful exertion provide our sustenance this day. May we, with the blessing of this food, join our hearts to the one heart of the world in awareness and love, and may we, together with everyone, realize the path of awakening and never stop making effort for the benefit of others. I hope you have a very good dinner. And we'll see you all at 7 o'clock back here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.